Good morning, y'all. I'm Leah, and I'll be reading your scripture today. When you present grain as an offering to the Lord, the offering must consist of choice flour. You are to pour olive oil on it, sprinkle it with frankincense, and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priest will scoop out a handful of the flour moistened with oil, together with all the frankincense, and burn this representative portion on the altar. It is a special gift, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering will then be given to Aaron and his sons. This offering will be considered a most holy part of the special gifts presented to the Lord. If your offering is a grain offering baked in an oven, it must be made of choice flour, but without any yeast. It may be presented in the form of thin cakes mixed with olive oil or wafers spread with olive oil. If your grain offering is cooked on a griddle, it must be made of choice flour mixed with olive oil but without any yeast. Break it in pieces and pour olive oil on it. It is a grain offering. If your grain offering is prepared in a pan, it must be made of choice flour and olive oil. No matter how a grain offering for the Lord has been prepared, bring it to the priest, who will present it at the altar. Do not use yeast in preparing any of the grain offerings you present to the Lord, because no yeast or honey may be burned as a special gift presented to the Lord. You may add yeast and honey to an offering of the first crops of your harvest, but these must never be seasoned on the altar, must never be offered on the altar as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Season all your grain offerings with salt to remind you of God's eternal covenant. Never forget to add salt to your grain offerings. Thank you. Thank you, Leah, for that riveting uh, reading. Makes us feel like we're uh, in baking class. Ready for Betty Crocker there. Um, Leah is a Georgetown student. She's a senior, and uh, she's going to be graduating, so we don't have her much longer. Actually, uh, Leah, be in your freshman year, I think, began, or sophomore, whatever, began coming, and before we knew it, Leah had invited a bunch of friends, and we had to eventually send a shuttle down to Georgetown, and Leah began the whole thing. So there you go. Thank you very much, and congratulations. Okay, so why the riveting reading about the baking class with the bread and the frankincense and the uh, olive oil and the no yeast and the no honey, but please do add salt. So what is that really all about? Every single one of those has a, a meaning to it. You know, the frankincense represents prayer and praise. The yeast and the honey, you can't have that because that represents something that can decay. Adding the salt to it, it tells us there, that represents the covenant. So last week, we talked about this. We talked about coming to the cross and laying uh, our sins, our separation from God there on the cross and acknowledging that and entering into a covenant with God. Why do you add the salt? You add the salt because when you put salt through a fire, it doesn't change. It remains intact. It doesn't burn up. There's nothing about it that changes, so nothing harms the covenant. So when you enter into a covenant with God, the reason this tells us to add, make sure you add the salt is nothing harms the covenant. It's good. It's completely intact. What is this really all about? You think about this, everybody, and this sacrifice, they would bring bread, and that always confused me. Why am I... Why am I bringing bread? Like, I'm going to bring bread to God and we're going to burn it up and somehow that's going to have an impact on my relationship with God in some way. What is that about? This is what makes Leviticus. We spoke about this last week. Leviticus was the first book that they studied. In children would study. This is the first book. Today it's the 
last book that we're going to study because of what Leah just read for us. I got a pan, I got a griddle, I got an oven. What is going on here? It's baking class. What is this all about? So let's make sense of this. They're in the desert, everybody. What, there's not a lot of food in the desert, right? So food, bread is something that we really need. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a necessity. So this represents a necessity of life. And so what they were bringing before God is anything that represents a necessity of life. Bread in the desert where famines happen is a big time necessity. Why in the world would I take a piece of something that I need so desperately to survive, to sustain me, to satisfy me and sacrifice it to God? Why would I do that? Here's why I would do that. I would do it because I'd say, God, ultimately, ultimately, you are my sustainer. You are my satisfier. I'm recognizing that. I'm acknowledging that by saying other things get in the way. Other things become ultimate things to me. And I just need to say here, on a daily basis, they would do the sacrifice. And then on a daily basis, I need you to know you are the ultimate in my life. You are the ultimate sustainer and, sac- and sustainer and, and, and satisfier of my life. That's who you are. And so this sacrifice was a statement. It was a daily reminder. It was an invitation to God. Now, I am acknowledging, like we acknowledged last week, I am separated from God. Now we acknowledge before God with this, good things, bad things, whatever things, we acknowledge to God, yes, I have them. It's the story. We've been talking about a story. There's a story that runs, like one single story that runs through the length of the Bible, and there's a story that runs through life. We see it in literature. We see it in movies. It's a story that's been around forever. It keeps coming back. And the story of the Bible and the story of life and literature just come together for us. And we see this story repeating over and over again. And that is that we can only find satisfaction in our souls in the presence of God. And this is why we have Leviticus. Because we have separ- we've moved away from God's presence. And we're searching for something to satisfy our souls. So... We have here, there's an outline behind me. It's also on the back of your bulletin. Protocol number two. We're calling them protocols. There's five of them. Last week was number one. Here's number two. Following right through the list of Leviticus. The second step, the second procedure, the second protocol, and moving into God's presence, which is what we desperately want more than anything else, is a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift we acknowledge before God, I'm giving this gift to you. Something that represents something that I say, I got to have that. If I just, if I just have that. So there's a fill in the blank there for you. Right? I don't know what you're going to fill in in that blank. That's for you to decide. I don't know what it is. If I just had that, I'd be happy. If I just had more money, I'd be happy. And then once I have that money, if I just had a little bit more money, I'd be happy. If, if I could just be married, I would be happy. If I could just be single again, I'd be happy, right? If I could just have kids, I would be satisfied. Everything would be beautiful and bliss. If I could just have obedient kids, then everything would be awesome in my life. If I could just get promoted, if I could just get that new car, if I could just have it. In the story of the Bible, in the story of life, The story of the Bible and the story of life is the constant pursuit of, I got to get this thing. And then sometimes we get it and then we realize, oh my gosh, that's not it. And so we run, and these are good things and bad things, right? Like, I got to get it. And we realize, oh man, that didn't do it. And so our life, so is there any way that we could stop doing this? 
When we are outside of the presence of God, you know what life is like? It's like walking through a grocery store when you're starving. Because you're grabbing, you're grabbing, and then you get out, and then maybe you eat a lot of that stuff, and you're like, ah, I wish I hadn't done that. So much, much of the Bible is about God trying to help us, trying to help us to prevent us from making decisions that we're going to later regret. That's what it's really all about. So that I stop walking through a grocery store starving, pulling it all down, thinking that's going to make me happy. That's going to make me happy. That's going to make me happy. And I later, the video, right? Just get, you know, if I can just get my hands on more money. And then the next thing we know, we find ourselves locked in a safe somewhere, banging, saying, will somebody let me out of here? Because I thought. So uh, let me give you a story, okay? Yeah, you tell me, you yell it out once you know this, all right? Tell me the author. Tell me the name of the novel. 1920s, a guy was in love, infatuated with a girl named Daisy. Man, you guys are smart. I didn't even, I didn't even get to the end of it. He's got to have Daisy. And to get Daisy, to get Daisy, what does he have to do? What does he have to do to get Daisy? Got to get rich. Get rich. How does he get rich? We don't know, but it seems maybe bootleg whiskey. All right? But he gets really rich. And he throws these big parties at his house. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people come to these lavish, incredible parties at his home, hoping that one day Daisy will show up because she lives across the bay, across the sound with her husband. And hopefully one day she'll come. Eventually they develop a relationship and now he's rich. He's as rich as her husband is rich. But she doesn't leave her husband. And this guy, his name is the Great Gatsby, right? ends up getting murdered. And we won't tell that whole story, how that happens, but he ends up getting murdered. And here's the thing. Here's the sad thing. He finally got rich. He thought this is what he wanted. And now at his funeral, how many people show up? Of all those hundreds of friends that came to his house. And you know what's also sad, it says in this story, that he would have these parties at his house, these magnificent parties, and he would like stand off to the side, not even like a participant, more like an observer of all this going on in his home and all these people filling his home. And now you get to the end of his life. Now he's dead in the ground, and it's so sad. You have the minister, you have his father, and you have the narrator, basically, of the whole story of three people standing there. And the narrator says, I tried to get just one of these friends, I tried to get somebody to show up. And Daisy, Daisy, the love of his life, who he said, I have to have, wouldn't even send a flower. Okay, so this is a recurring story. I have to, I have to have this. I, I need you to know this. This represents not bad things. This can represent good things or bad things. The issue is, is repeatedly in my life, things like money, which is not bad. Marriage, which is, not bad, right? It's a good thing, okay? I don't want that to get confused, okay? Promotions, education, all these accomplishments. The problem is, is that they keep rising to the top and become ultimate things. And so in this daily sacrifice, we would say to God, yep, 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 God. It's not, do I have something in my heart that I think I have to have. I have to have that and I'll be happy. It's not do. It's just how many things do I have? And so it's a daily acknowledgement. Yes, I do have idols in my life. Idols, idols. I do have them. And the thing about that word is that sounds really weird, particularly today. We say idols. Idols, that's so old. That's so biblical. That's so archaic. I used to think that a lot. 
And it bothered me to kind of talk about the Israelites and they leave Egypt and they're out in the middle of the desert and they make this golden calf, this idol, and they bow down to it. And I thought, yeah, I don't want to talk about that. It's irrelevant to today. I mean, who's bowing down to a golden calf? We don't do that today. And then I realized the golden calf represents three things they were bowing down to, money, sex, and power. And I thought, maybe we still do have a problem with those things. Possibly. Those are things that we bow down to. I don't know. Read the headlines. I think we do. And those three things represent a whole umbrella stuff that they don't have to be bad but when they become ultimate things. And so this sacrifice, so this bread, why am I sacrificing? But why am I giving this to the priest? And he's burning it on the altar. Why am I doing this? Because I'm acknowledging, yes, it's not do I have them. All of us have them. It's how many do I have? And, I make it, and then I'm inviting. I'm inviting God to come into my life and work in my heart and to help me with those things that just keep becoming ultimate things. And to stop me from walking through the grocery store, starving to death, picking stuff, off of the shelves and later having those regrets. That is what this sacrifice is really all about. It's the story of Genesis all the way through the Bible, all the way through the Bible of when we're out of God's presence. Leviticus is all about how to reenter God's presence. When we're out of God's presence, there's something we think is missing. I need that. And so we just reach for whatever it might be. And God's saying, you know what, what you really need, what you're longing for? is to being back in my presence. That's what I created, the Garden of Eden. And here's how you return these five protocols that we're talking about here, okay? So what you want to write down today on the back of the bulletin, if you like to write things, things down, is whatever it is, good, bad, that thing that becomes that ultimate thing. And when you do that, you're saying to God, hey, God, I'm inviting you to work in my life and to help me and that you, God, are my sole sustainer. Inside your bulletins, everybody, you got a three-by-five card, and I want to tell you about it now and remind you about it in the, uh, in the end when we're done. So this is for you, and I'm going to do mine own up here. This is for you to write down maybe that word. You know? <laughs> I got to get that promotion. I got to get married. I got to get more money. Whatever it is, to write that down, and to fold it up, you don't put your name on it, just totally nice, write that word down. And at the end, we're going to come and put this at the foot of the cross and say, God, I'm acknowledging and I'm inviting you to work in my life because you're the ultimate sustainer and satisfier of my life. And I'm asking you to immerse me into your presence so that I no longer feel like I'm making those desperate decisions. And put it here at the foot of the cross and then we're going to gather all this stuff up. We're going to take it back to the office and we're going to burn it. Just like they did in the tabernacle. We are going to burn it before God. And it's us and God. Ultimately, I want to experience your presence in a deeper way so that my soul will be satisfied. I have a couple scriptures for you that's very important from the Psalms. All kinds of scriptures we could look to. Let me just give you three. Two of them are from Psalm 63 and one is from 143. And here's what it says. My soul thirsts for you. So at the deepest level of our being... And this is hard to understand sometimes. It's like, hey, John, you're saying I really need God's presence. The Bible is saying we really need God's presence. Until we have experienced God's presence in a deep way that just seems so foreign to us, like gibberish that I'm speaking up here this morning. But once we've tasted it, once our soul has tasted it, and it starts to make sense in our minds, like, oh, yes. 
if I, if my soul, if the emptiness, if the dryness, if the thirstiness of my soul could experience that, it would stop that feeling. Like I'm walking through that grocery store and I've got to have this and I've got to have this. And again, it's not all bad stuff. But now I would make decisions that are much more sound because I'm in God's presence. So the psalmist says, my soul thirsts. That's what our soul ultimately wants. And what happens in life is other things take the ultimate position. And it's natural. It's normal. It happens to me all the time. God knows this. God isn't, when he sees this happen to us, he's like, I can't believe this happened to them. How did this happen to them? God never does that. God is fully expecting it to happen over and over and over again. God wasn't shocked when they made a golden calf. No shock by God. This is why he gives us Leviticus. He wants us to give a way to experience his presence. My soul clings to you, it says in the Psalms. I lift up my hands in prayer because my soul is a desert. God understands our emptiness. He understands what our soul needs most. Isn't more money? It's not another promotion. It's not another degree. Those are all great, wonderful things. But what our soul ultimately needs in the desert where bread is so necessary, it's a necessity. You eat the bread or you die. Okay? That's the reality. What we are saying is, is God, you are ultimate. And I'm recognizing it and inviting you to work in my life and immerse me into your presence. God understands this. He understands that. Even the most disciplined people in the world, the people you look at, man, they're so disciplined. They got their life, man. It's just so disciplined. It's in order. You know what we find out from even the most disciplined people in the world? Even the most disciplined people have an area in their life that they can't seem to get under control. And for a lot of really, really disciplined people, they're really great at hiding that, but there's this craving in their hearts. They might be great at a lot of stuff, but there's craving in their heart. I can't. You know why? Because our soul ultimately longs for the presence of God. This is what it's saying. This is why we have the book of Leviticus. Okay, give me even another one. You were very good, actually. Don't tell the 930 much quicker than the 930 service on the Great Gatsby. My gosh, I, I must have told... 20 seconds of the story before somebody said, The Great Gatsby. Okay. You guys were good. I'm going to give you one more. Okay. I'll give you one more. Uh, German legend, a very successful scholar, tremendously successful scholar, completely dissatisfied with life. Yes, you got it. Faust makes a deal with the devil to satisfy his soul. But he makes this deal, and what happens in the end, he ends up, even though he has so much and he's so dissatisfied, he ends up going for more and more and more and deals with the devil, makes a pact with the devil, and he ends up in a much worse place. What's the story that's being told? It's not the things of life that satisfy our soul. What they actually say about that story, it's misplaced spirituality. And I had an idea. I thought to myself, I wonder how many stories like that exist. I wonder, are there a lot of stories like that? So I went to the only place I knew I could get an answer. Where is that? Yes. Specifically, Wikipedia. I went to Wiki. I said, Wiki, how many stories like Faust exist? Hundreds and hundreds. Literature, movies, songs, TV shows, on and on. And I want to give you a couple of those. Now, let's look at the first image there, Mark. Okay. Who is that guy? Anakin. Anakin, right? Anakin. Okay. I need to say something. Here's what I've learned about Star Wars people. Strong opinions. 
So I'm getting ready to tell you something, and some of you are going to like radically disagree. Please send your email to Wikipedia, whoever that is. Send it to them, okay? I'm just relating something that I read off a of wiki, but this is what they say. So this guy is Anakin. Good guy who makes a deal with the bad guy. The bad guy's name is? Come on, Star Wars people. Darth Sidious, right? 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 Makes a deal. I'll sit under your teaching if you'll just give me this. What he wanted was a good thing, I think. I'm not a Star Wars guy, okay? But because he makes that deal, who does he turn into? There he is. He becomes that, I, if I could just get this. And, th and this way, now there's, there's, there's another guy who sells his soul. Who's the next guy, Mark? Yes. Yes. What's he do? Sells it for how much? Five bucks. Sell my soul. I will sell my soul for five for Five dollars. One last one. In a second, we're going to play a couple bars uh, from a tune. Now, again, I had no idea what this song was about. There's all kinds of songs about this same theme of going after something and find satisfied or making a deal with the devil or whatever. I got to have this and be satisfied. So part of this was this song, and I've heard this song for years. I'm like, what is that? This is a very popular song. What in the world is this song about? We're only going to play you a couple bars to this song. Yell it out if you know the name of the song. Ben? Bohemian Rhapsody. Are you serious? That's what Wiki said. That's what Wiki said. And so Wiki says there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Of so, so it's a constant story. Through the Bible, there's one story the Bible's telling. And there's a story that life and literature is telling us over and over again that we can only find satisfaction. And what happens is, and there are good things, and sometimes there's bad things, but we just keep trying to find it, and we're like, that didn't work. And, we try, and then we end up locked inside of a safe. And God wants to help us in the book of Leviticus that this pattern of our life we begin to stop. And we would stop making desperate decisions that we later regret in our life. Is that possible? God says, yes, it is. We need to be watered in his presence. And this is how we do it through this. So Leviticus, what's the name mean? It's from the first few words of the book. The first few, and he called. That's where the name Leviticus comes from. And he called. God is always calling us. He's calling us to himself. I need you to know this here, everybody. God is not shaming us to him. He's call God is always calling. He's the caller. You used to play the game hide and seek, right? Everybody does. I hope you did. I hope you didn't miss out in your youth. Hide and seek. Fantastic. Fantastic game. Wonderful game of hide and seek. What do you call the person that nobody wants to be that person? The seeker. Okay, but, but, but what are they really called? It. It. Nobody wants to be it. Nobody wants to be it. Who is it 100% of the time in Scripture? Who is it? God is always it. God is always calling. God is always seeking. Genesis chapter 3, he's always seeking. He's always calling. You need to know this today. Because those things in our lives, we think, you know what? Uh, do I really? I mean, are we going to? I feel like in my life, can I really admit to God that I have these things in my life that are kind of idols? They become ultimate. I can't really say that to God. No, 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 no. We need to say them to God. He expects it. He knows they're there. We have to acknowledge them before God. They're not, God's not going to help us remove those things unless we do acknowledge them. And this was a daily thing they did. Right? And there's times in my life when I realize I have these things that become ultimate things. And then I'll I have these feelings of shame. And I need you to know this. God is not shaming you back to himself. 
He's extending grace. He's calling you back to himself. So as you read the book of Leviticus and you read all this stuff and it says, this is unclean and this is unclean and this is unclean, we begin to get a misunderstanding of the book. And we think God is shaming. He's not shaming us. He's actually saying, there is a better life for you. Maybe you've helped somebody out in your life at some point and they were in a very bad situation, maybe even an abusive situation like I've helped people out. And in many times, they're like, but this is, this is, just, this is my life. That's all I know, and I don't think it'd be anything else. And I'm like, oh my gosh, no, no, trust me. There's something far better. That's Leviticus. God is saying, this is not the way it's meant to be. Trust me, there's something far, far better. That's what Leviticus is really all about. And God is waving us into his presence through his grace. He's not shaming us. God through Jesus Christ, is the approachable God through grace. I want to take you through the tabernacle in just a moment and help us to understand what is the meaning of that tabernacle that was in the middle of the camp. John chapter 1 says Jesus Christ tabernacled amongst us. Very important. Here, in the middle of the camp of two to three million people, you got the whole camp. In the middle of the camp, you have this tabernacle which intensely represented the the presence of God. And God is not shaming you. Feel unclean. God is actually waving us in to his presence. Let me say one more thing about shame. This is really important. We read, I read the Bible many times in my growing up, and I, I feel this shame. I'm unclean. I feel this shame. I read a great book by Brene Brown. Brene Brown did a lot of really popular TED Talks wrote a book called The Power of Vulnerability, and here's what she says. She's a data person, right? Psychologist who's a data person. I love data people because we get right to the heart of the matter. She says, here's what we know about shame. She says, shame is bad. Shame is very bad. And here's what shame is. Maybe you're out late one night, and I don't know, maybe you drink too much or something like that, and it's a really late night, and you, because of all that that goes on the night before, you wake up late, you get late to a meeting, Right? And now you feel really bad. And so here's shame. Shame says, man, I'm such a loser. Such an idiot. Such a jerk for doing that. I'm such a loser. That's shame. And shame is a terrible thing. Because what she says the data shows us is this. Is that people who have addictions, and I think all of us have some level of addiction, maybe, maybe. I'm not a psychologist, right? But I'm just taking this from what she's saying. You have to have shame for addictions. That if, if, if you want to turbocharge your addictions, just add shame to yourself. If you know somebody in your life that has an addiction, hit them with shame. It's like, boom, it's like fuel, it's oxygen. It turbocharges it. Shame. Shame is bad. She says this, guilt. Guilt is good, she says. Guilt is really good, which was great for me to hear because preachers love to use guilt. And I'm saying guilt. And what is guilt? She says, guilt is behavior. Guilt isn't, I'm a jerk. I'm a loser. I'm such a terrible... That's, that's not guilt. Guilt is this. Guilt is, you know what? I shouldn't have done what I did last night. Made me late to my meeting. Things went wrong. You know what? In the future, I'm going to change my decisions. I'm going to make better decisions. And I'm going to do something else. The word repentance... The word repentance isn't a shame word. The word repentance is a behavioral decision word. The word means repentance, to change your direction, to change your decisions. So Jesus Christ's front man 
comes along. His name is what? John the Baptist. And he says, repent, repent, because the kingdom of God is here. What is he saying? Change your decisions. He's not shaming us into his presence. He's saying, make a different decision. So what we see here in the tabernacle is, is God is standing there in the middle of the camp, waving them in through his grace. Grace is the approachable. Everybody wanted to be around Jesus because of his grace. Let's look at the diagram, Mark. Okay, there it is. It's sat. That's the tabernacle. It's just a diagram of it. Sat in the middle of the camp, two to three million people in the center of the camp, intensely representing the presence of God. Now, in the Bible, the number, we're not going to do numbers every week. Last week we did number seven. Today we're going to do number five, but don't, we're, this is, we're done, I think, with numbers. There are a lot of fives. Fives represents grace, which represents God is approachable. He's saying he's waving us in, not shaming us in. There are so many fives associated with this tabernacle. First of all, there's five steps. The presence, the most intense place where they would look at the presence of God is in the Holy of Holies. You see that step number five. The entrance is one. The altar, the altar, two. Where you would wash your hands, the bronze laver is three. The holy place is four. The holy of holies is five. And you know we're talking about five protocols, five procedures. Five, five is all over the place. Let me give you a bunch more fives because you need to see this. This is like a neon light flashing in the middle of the camp. Come, I'm waving you in by my grace, okay? Look at all these fives associated. So this is what they would see. They would know that everything about the tabernacle is screaming from God. God is not standing there saying, you are unclean. God is there saying, come on. So we do something. We're ashamed of it. That's not coming from God. We have an eye on life. God is saying, I want you to come in. So... We already talked about uh, there are five steps. There's five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses, the Torah, okay? Then you have five curtains that were in the tabernacle. There's five crossbars. There's five posts. There's five bases. The altar that we talked about a moment ago, it's five cubits square. The fence that went around the whole thing was five cubits high. The anointing oil that represents God's presence poured upon Aaron, dripping down like he was in a rainfall of God's presence, is made up of five parts. This tabernacle, which represents the presence of God, is God waving us into his presence. It's where we really long to be. How do we get there? So that we stop doing this in our lives. Let me give you three more things about the number five. There's only one miracle of Jesus Christ that's listed in every single story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Who knows what it might be? The feeding of how many people? And with how many of these? Five. What's the message of that story? Why did Jesus do that in every single one? Because Jesus is saying, I am the ultimate sustainer of your life, and you're going to be so, I'm going to be so inclined to think, it's this, it's this, it's this, and, I, and I'm locked inside a safe. It's this, and I'm locked inside a safe. I, I didn't say they're all bad things. It could be good things. I want to be a better preacher. I hope that's a good thing. I do. But that's not going to make me satisfied. Only the presence of God is. And so God feeds 5,000 people with five loaves. What's the message? It's by the grace of God that we understand that our souls can be sustained by God and God alone. Our souls are longing, thirsty, desert, wanting to be watered in the presence. And it's by his grace. And he's waving us in. Some of us here this morning like, we're like, oh, God doesn't, I'm shamed. No, no, no. This is God. He's not this to you. He's this. Come on. That's what the tabernacle represents, Jesus Christ's tabernacle. Let me give you another one. David fights Goliath. He stoops down at the stream and he picks up how many stones? Five. 
5. Grace. It is by the power of the grace of God. Not your power, not because you're a moral person, not because you're such a good person that you are going to have victory. No, 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 no. It's by the grace of God, He's waving you into His presence, that you're going to find victory. Last one. John chapter 4. Jesus Christ does something very unusual. He diverts His path, and He stops in a place where nobody would ever go. Not a Jewish person. He goes to Samaria, and then He does what nobody would ever do. In the middle of the day, He stops at a well, and He talks to a woman. And this woman obviously is hurting. She's there by herself. You would never go to the well by yourself. She's made a lot of desperate decisions, and she's at a very low place in her life. And Jesus says, call your, call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. It is by the grace of God that he will help us in the midst of his presence to stop walking through a grocery store starving, pulling everything down out of the shelf, and then realizing later we're locked in a safe. It is by the grace of God that he's beckoning us home. This is what Leviticus is really all about. And I just need every one of us to understand that because it is very confused in our understanding oftentimes. By the grace of God, we stop making these decisions. Okay. Genesis 4.14. Very important verse in the Bible. Again, the storyline in the Bible is they're in, immersed in the presence of God. They make a decision. They begin to separate themselves. From the, and the, the, the more they separate, we're going to talk a lot about this next week, but as you read in Genesis, there's a constant story. They keep moving east. I should get on this side. I think east is that way. It says they keep going east, east. And it says they kept going east, east. They kept making decisions farther and farther, and they kept grasping for something that would satisfy their souls. And they couldn't find any sustenance. They couldn't find any satisfaction. So they kept going east. And the more they did, the worse things became. That's the story of Genesis. And so you have Cain. And he kills his brother Abel. And after that's over, God comes and seeks him out. And then Cain says something really important. Genesis 4.14. What does he say? He says, God, I will be hidden from your presence. And here it comes, everybody. And I will be a what? A restless wanderer. Oh, my gosh. Everybody, that is, that's the story of my life. When I read that, I said, now it makes sense. I find a restlessness in me so often. I feel like I'm restlessly wandering. And God says, yep, I know you do. And I have the solution for you. You will no longer feel restless when you're in my presence, which is where you were created to live. You were created to live in my presence. And when you're not in my presence, you begin to grasp at all kinds of things. It's just natural. There's no shame in that. It's, it's expected by God. It's ordinary. And so the thing to do, the thing to do is take those things that so easily become ultimate things. Some might be bad. Some of them might be great. But they become ultimate things like bread in the middle of a desert where there's famine. And we say, God, I am, this is, what this, this is what this whole thing is about. I'm acknowledging to you today that yes, I'm acknowledging to you today, yes, I do have those things in my heart. And I'm inviting you to work in my life and allow me to move deeper and deeper and deeper into your presence so that I stop walking through that grocery store like I'm starving. Okay, one last thing. Back in 1994, the Rolling Stones uh, did what is called the Voodoo Lounge Tour. 
Does anybody remember the Rolling Stones? Does anybody remember where they kicked off the tour? Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I just think, I knew the 930 wouldn't get it, but I was thinking the hard rockers at the 11 would get it. They kicked it off here at RFK Stadium, right? That's where the whole thing got kicked off, the Voodoo Lounge Tour. So uh, along the way, uh, they went to Pasadena, California to the Rose Bowl, 85,000 people. The weather's always great in California, right? It's always great out there. And so there they are at the Rose Bowl. There's 85,000 people in a group of middle-aged pastors decided, let's go do some reflections on popular culture. So they bunch of them, they bought tickets to the Voodoo Lounge Tour. Yes, they're there with their cell phones, holding them up, letting their kids hear all the music's going on. It's a big time. During this time that they're there, with all the people you're looking up on stage, you got Mick Jagger, you got the Rolling Stones, you got fame, you got fortune, you got success, right? You got everything. Hey, Mick Jagger is not bowing down at the golden calf. He owns the golden calf, right? right? He owns that. Thing. He's got it all. And one minister turns to the other and says, you know what? There's 85,000 people here. Look at these guys on stage. It's awesome. Everybody wants to be them. Everybody wants to be them. And if you had a chance to speak, if like they said, hey, come up on stage, minister. We want you to speak to all these 85,000 people who are having an awesome time watching Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones sing. You know, great, smiling, happy. What would you say, minister, to these 85,000 people? And you know what? It hit him just like it would have hit me right between the eyes. Like, oh, my gosh. What are you going to say? You can't compete. What are you going to say? You can't compete with that. You can't compete with that. And so he sat there shocked for a while. And then you know who bailed him out? Mick Jagger bailed him out. As if Mick Jagger had been sitting between the two of them and listening to the conversation. Mick Jagger bails him out. What's he play, Ben? Play it for us. Tell me if you know the song. Huh? Play it like you mean it, Ben. Huh? You're not going to achieve a higher place than Mick Jagger, everybody. huh? You're not going to get to a higher place than him, and he at the top of the world. Right? We talk about the old Amway thing, the top of the mountain. Okay, he's on the top of the mountain. He owns the mountain, and he's standing there on the stage in front of 85,000 people, and he's leading them in a chorus of, I can't get no satisfaction. I got all the money in the world. I got all the fame. I got every woman in the world I want, right? And I can't get no satisfaction. Mick Jagger has the message. And that's why I named this message today, a message from Mick Jagger. Look, here's the thing. All right, you can cut it. Here's the thing. We're just going to keep doing this. It's natural. Life and literature in the Bible, one consistent story. We got to figure out a way. We got to figure out a way to come over here and say, you know what? God, help me. I'm acknowledging this. I'm acknowledging this. So the team's going to lead us in a song that we sang just a few moments ago. If I have you, I have everything. And this is what I'm going to do. This is the practical deal with this sacrifice. Up here, I'm just going to write on this card. I wish it was bigger. I'm just going to write on this card those things in my own life. It's not do they exist. It's how many exist for me. I'm going to put them down. And this is my open invitation. This is me writing an invitation to God. God, I need you to work in my life. I'm acknowledging my stuff. And I need you to work in my life. And I'm going to put it over here. And what we're going to, what we're going to allow all of you to do, if you'd like to do it, is to write that thing right now. Just go ahead and write it as your sacrifice to God.
Put that thing down, fold that card up, and in a moment we're all going to stand up. The team is going to sing, and you come up and just throw it in here. And after this service, we're going to take it back to the office and we're going to burn it, just like they did in the tabernacle. We're going to burn it. And you know what it says? You know what it says at the beginning that Leah just read a few moments ago? It's a very pleasing aroma to God. God, God begins to work in our life in a very, very wonderful way. So I encourage you, uh, if you'd like uh, to do that during the song, put it there, and let's see what God does in our hearts. Let's pray in this thing. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for your grace. I thank that you, that you are waving us into your presence today. Help us, Lord, to acknowledge those things that easily become ultimate things. And God, get them out of the way so that our souls can be satisfied and watered and no longer be a dry desert, God. Immerse us in your presence, in your holy name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.